a weekend. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. Lord willing, we'll wrap up 2 Timothy 3 this morning. We are in verses 15 and 16. Verses 15 and 16 are probably two of the most famous verses, at least in our circles, of, of, um, of all of 2 Timothy, and very important verses. Um, it's an interesting text in that it's very instructive in a number of different ways. Obviously, it's, it's very instructive in four major ways, five major ways, actually. Actually, you could say six major ways. How many major ways? It could be any. No. Anyway, <laughs> do I hear seven? Um, but it, what's interesting about 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 is that it can be handled two very unique ways. Oftentimes, when you take a passage out of its context, it's most times mishandled and abused. 2 Timothy chapter 3 has been approached oftentimes ignoring the context of the book. And I think at some level to its detriment. But yet at the same time, even outside of its context, it's a unique passage in that it is an incredibly crucial and valuable passage even out of its context. Okay, what I mean by out of its context, I don't mean anti its context, I mean just as a standalone. Does that make sense? As a standalone, it's a really valuable text. But when you fold it into its context in 2 Timothy, I'm convinced it brings a lot more to the table than we typically bring to the table with the text. I've preached on this passage numerous times in the 15 years I've been here. And the 15 years I've been here, I've discovered I have, just about every time, taken it out of its context. And I hope this morning to bring the text back into its context. And I think you'll find the value of it as a standalone, but also the value of it within the con context of the, of the book itself. So let's start out by a little review. We're talking about 2 Timothy. We know that Paul's writing to a man, Timothy. The man, Timothy, is a, a pastor, an elder. He's pastoring a church that is going through difficulties, but it's going to make it soon, it's going to be, all those difficulties he's going through are going to be look, looking like child's play. It's going to get worse. It's going to get much worse. Why is that? Because it's the last days. We remember in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that he says, he warns us in the very beginning, the first verse, in the last days difficult times will come. I would argue that for Paul, his perspective on last days is not someday way distant in the future. But it's at that point in time. And we are living in the last days. And so it certainly it's directly applicable uh, to uh, the context that we find ourselves in. Paul talks to Timothy, a man who he ministered to, repeatedly, cared for, nurtured, guided, taught, all the way into the beginning budding of spiritual maturity. His hope, in now that he's no longer with Timothy, is that he's continuing on in his spiritual maturity, which he ought to be doing. He's an elder, but we know that elders don't necessarily continue to grow in spiritual maturity. And so he's hoping, in chapter 1, that Timothy's continuing on in, in this spiritual maturity path or direction, trajectory that he was already on. He encourages him strongly in that direction. He reminds him of numerous things in chapters 1 and 2. We'll get to those in a few moments. But jumping into chapter 3, 
just by way of review, if you remember, we said the chapter 3 of 2 Timothy in the first nine or so verses has nothing to do with the world. This is not a description of the world. It is a description of the church in the last days. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy in the last days, the church, generally speaking, is going to go from bad to worse. It's going to get ugly. It's going to be bankrupt. It's going to not be pretty. People will lose sight of what their sight should be on. And he prepares Timothy for that. Now, the most interesting preparation we looked at just uh, several weeks ago, and that is when he comments, starting in verse 10, about the past tense, what he has done. He's followed Paul's teaching, his conduct, his aim in life, his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfastness, his persecutions, all the ones that happened to him. And he reminds him in verse 12 that any though anybody, everyone, who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus, who desires, in other words, to mature, to live a godly life, to mature in Christ, will be persecuted. Verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And by the way, that's again going back to the initial chapter 3 stuff of being in the church. These are not deceivers out in the world. It's deceivers in the church. Too often I've heard people preach on the text talking about these deceivers are people out in the world trying to deceive the church and pull them out of the church. No, it's stuff going on inside the church. Which brings us into the last text that we looked at. He says to him in verse 14 and 15, if you remember, we said this is the anecdote or the, the, the solution, the cure for this. Paul tells Timothy, the cure for you, the prescription anecdote, the prescription for you is this. And as we mentioned several weeks ago, or last week, whenever it was, last week, you'll notice he moves from plural to singular, but as for you, Timothy, you continue. No matter what anybody else does, you continue. That was the prescription number one we saw last week. No matter what anybody else does, you continue in what you've believed, what you've been firmly convinced of. You continue in these things. Even if you're the only one. Even if there's nobody else like that in your church, Timothy, you continue. Now, I want to remind you, we've, got, we've gone over this every week, 2 Timothy is not just for the elders. It's not just for the pastors. It's not just for Steve. Because what Paul tells Timothy is teach faithful men who will teach others also. So Timothy's to pass this, this call to be faithful that Paul is giving him to those faithful ones in his church who will then do what? Teach others also. And we've already talked about that in previous, previous installments, as it were, that one of the ways you can evaluate if you're a faith one is if you're taking what you're learning and doing what with it? Sharing, teaching others. If you're not, guess what? You're not the faithful one. If you're not ministering to others. You're not a faithful one. You're just not. And so that's where the initial call to repentance comes in. So the first prescription that Paul gives Timothy, verse 14 and 15, but you continue, as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. That's talking about the, old, the New Testament stuff that Paul has taught him. Verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in, in Christ Jesus, New uh, Old Testament. Which brings us to our text today. And what I'm going to try to do as we go through this text today is to fold it back into chapters 1, 2, and 3 so you can see how it connects with the entirety of the book because it is really kind of the capstone in this prescription number 2 
for a church in trouble, and even if a church is not in trouble, it's still the same prescription. What does he say? 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, let me just give a little disclosure before we actually start unpacking the text. I already started the disclosure early on, and that is that I think too often we handle the text from uh, uh, from a perspective of not considering the context of the book. I know I certainly have. And so this is like Steve's confession time for a little bit here, if I may. Too often how we approach this section of verses, these two verses, we approach them, we don't even realize it necessarily, but we approach them from a more legalistic perspective, a law-based perspective. And so we read through this and we see, after getting through the first phrase, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for it says, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And we take all four of those pieces, and rightfully so, and we unpack all four of those statements, and rightfully so, and we wrestle with what they actually mean, and rightfully so, and we miss the whole teaching. And we even bring them back together again, verse 17, and we miss the whole teaching. The whole teaching of what? The whole teaching of Paul in 2 Timothy, to the man Timothy. And so we need to get it all into its context again so we don't fall into the trap of doing what we so often do. Although it's true and right, what I'm about to say, it's not complete. When we look at the text and we see it's profitable for, I'm just going to give it to you real quick, for teaching, for approval, for correction, and training in righteousness, verse 17, so the man of God may be equipped for every good work, we say, so it, it, what we do is we go through it and we say, so it tells us how we ought to live, it tells us how we don't measure up, it tells us how we need to correct it, and then it tells us how we need to grow in righteousness. And it does, doesn't it? That's what the text says. And we'll get into that a little more in just a little bit. That's all true and important and valuable and crucial. God did not leave us clueless on how to become spiritually mature. He's been talking about spiritual maturity, hasn't he? He certainly doesn't leave us clueless on the process of becoming spiritually mature. Because we need to recognize that. But there's something else going on here. I'm convinced of it. And we see it in context. So we're going to talk about what we just talked about briefly, that, that real fast flyby I just did. We're going to talk about it a little bit more in depth. We want to get it more in its context than we typically do this morning. Especially because we've covered this before. This is not new to us. So, here's our prescription today. In the midst of the last days, we need a prescription, don't we? We've got one, verses 14 and 15. We need prescription number two. Very seldom do you ever go to a doctor and only get one pill, right? You usually get like 12. So, it gives us two prescriptions. One last week, one this week. 14, 15, prescription one. 16.7, prescription number two. What is prescription number two that Paul gives Timothy that an elder needs and everyone else needs as well? What is it? Well, he starts off by explaining what the prescription is. It's the scriptures, isn't it? The prescription is the scriptures. Paul, 
tells Timothy, Timothy, how do you, can you possibly expect to handle the onslaught of a church in the last days? I mean, that's the question. Or more specifically, how can you possibly expect in this onslaught of a church in disrepair, a church that's not functioning correctly, a church that's failing, a church that's lost its focus, its direction, its hope, its, its everything, it's lost it. How can Timothy, the pastor, or anybody possibly avoid not being just like everybody else in the church? That's what Paul's addressing. In 2 Timothy, he's saying, this is what the church in the last days is going to be like. But you, don't be like that. Don't live like that. Don't have that focus. Don't have that. Don't have those your goals. Don't, don't get consumed by all these things. Don't get consumed by all this, let's use the term, idolatry, because that's what it is. How can I not? How, how is it possible that Timothy can come to church week after week after week after week and minister the word to people who don't give a rip about what he's saying? How can he do that? Right? Or for, for the, the member of the church, how can the member of the church come to church week after week after week after week and sit with a group of people who would much rather be focused on everything else but what's going on and what's being talked about, what's being sung about at church? How can that person, let's use the term, that faithful person, how can that person stay faithful? And this time is supposed to be for corporate worship for the mutual encouragement and building up each other in worshiping the, our Lord and Savior, the Great One, Jesus Christ. How is it possible that someone can come into that situation week after week and not be drugged down to just that mediocre, empty, not kingdom of God perspective? How can, to, to, put, to put a little more skin on it, how can a person, whether it's a pastor or another faithful one, come to that church, have his heart set for the kingdom of God, and find out that the vast majority of the people in the church are after a different kingdom? How can that person avoid finding themselves being drugged right into the muck and the mire? Right? I, I, isn't, that a question, isn't that a question? Is it? It's absolutely the question. And that's what these prescriptions are all about that Paul tells Timothy. And so he, he got the first prescription, continue what you've believed and become firmly convinced of, and then he brings verse 14 and 15 together into 16 and 17 in this second prescription, which really isn't a second prescription, but we'll call it a second prescription. And he says to him, after talking about the, Old, the New Testament and the Old Testament, in verse 16, he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Can I just ask you a really quick question? Is God gracious? That's a really easy question to answer, isn't it? Is God merciful to you? Is he gracious to you? The Bible says his mercies are new every morning, grace is faithfulness. If we're saved, he's gracious to us, isn't he? in special, amazing ways. I would present to you that one of the greatest ways, I wouldn't necessarily say the, the greatest because I'm not sure I'm in a, ca in a position to be able to say, this is number one and that's number two in demonstrations of grace. But one of the greatest demonstrations of grace 
and mercy that God has for you and me is this right here. Do you realize that? This is scripture. You know why? And thank you for the amen over there, by the way. You know why? Because without the scriptures, we would know nothing eternally. Without the scriptures, we know nothing about God the Father. We know, without the scriptures, we know nothing about God the Son. Without the scriptures, we know nothing about God the Holy Spirit. Without the scriptures, we know nothing about the depths of our sin and our evil. Without the scriptures, we know nothing about our need for a redeemer. Without the scriptures, we know nothing about what it means to be lost. Without the scriptures, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know anything about being hellbound. Without the scriptures, we would know nothing about the kingdom of heaven. We would only know the kingdom of Satan. Without the scriptures, we would never know that there was a salvation. In fact, there would be. Without, without the scriptures, we would never know that we could be a friend of God. We would never know anything about adoption into God's family. We would never know about forgiveness. We would never know. It would go on and on and on. We would never know anything. Anything of eternal value. Oh, we may be able to figure out Adam. We may be able to figure out how to build cars and all the rest. We would know nothing eternally. Grace. And what he says here in verse 16 is so important. He says to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. God has spoken. He's communicated to man. We who were in rebellion to him, we who hated him and despised him and rejected him and went our own way. And it tracks all the way back to the garden. He speaks. We who have hated him and ignored him speaks. And he tells us here in verse 16, all scripture is his. All scripture is his word, his communication. The one we mocked and spit on and ridiculed and despised and ignored and minimized and trivialized. Now we can get into it further and, and probe what that means further, but just leave it. At, we'll just leave it at that at this point. It's all breathed out. It's inspired. It's given to us by God. It is God's actual communication with man. It's amazing. So how is that part of the prescription? Well, he goes on and he says, "All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable." Now, this, I think, is really important that we get. And I just want to pause that for just a second. He says it's profitable. And I'm just going to spend just a moment on it. But what Paul is doing is he's establishing a contrast. He's about ready to talk about what it's profitable for. But before we get to what it's profitable for, he says it is profitable. And the contrast is chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And it's not just 3, 1 through 9, but it's 3, 1 through 9. It's in contrast to 3, 1 through 9. All the stuff that the church in the last days is going to pursue is ultimately 
profit less, right? Of no profit. And what Paul is doing is he's establishing an absolute contrast. What he is in effect saying is this. What man has a natural bent to pursue, even people who name the name of Jesus, but we have a natural bent to pursue what makes sense to us as profitable ultimately is always unprofitable. Ultimately, there's only one thing that is profitable. And that's what Paul's trying to establish here is this absolute contrast. All the ideas that man has, profitless. God's word, the scriptures, profitable. It's not profitable, one thing among many. It's everything else falls in category A, and the scriptures fall into category B. It stands alone. You want to know it's profitable? It's this, not that. That's what Paul's trying to establish. What happened, if you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 15 and following, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, right? Now, there's a couple that didn't. He mentions a few people that really cared for him, ministered to him, right? But generally speaking, the entire church in Asia turned from Paul. Why? Because they found something more profitable. They, if, to say it more accurately, they found something that was profitless, profitable. They misidentified. They said the thing, and this is what happened. They looked at the thing that is profitable, and they said, of the thing that is profitable, it is profitless or unprofitable. And they looked at the things that were profitless or unprofitable, and they said they are ultimately profitable. And you know what happened then? They left him. They left Paul. That's what drove them to leave Paul. It's exactly what drove them to leave Paul. Now, they would never most likely have claimed they left Paul because they would claim they're with Jesus, right? They would claim that, you know, we're still a church. We're still going to church. We're still ministering. We're still hanging out. We're still singing songs. We're still listening to messages. But ultimately, their value, what they considered profitable, was something else. And that's the deceptive thing. Because most Christians today would say about the Scriptures, they'd say the Scriptures are... Fill in the blank. Most Christians say what about the scriptures? Give me some ideas. The scriptures are, I'm not looking for, I'm not fishing, just anything. Most Christians would say, if you interview them, what do you think of the scriptures? They'd say, what? Throw out some ideas. Authoritative and inspired. What else? What? Guidelines to live by. What else? Source of truth. What else? Any other ideas? Good. Well, those are good, those are good ones. That's fine. Those are the type of things the average Christian would say. But then if, if, if you take the average Christian and say, hey, tell you what, we'd like to put your week that you just lived, not the week coming up, because that's too easy to adjust, right? We'd like to take the week you just lived, and we'd like to put it under the microscope to see if that's really true. What do you think would happen? What do you think we'd discover? We'd find, for all of us, we'd find failure, right? Because we're sinners. But for oftentimes what you'll find is you'll find that there'll be failures. Yes, of course, there'll be failures. But what you find, interestingly enough, there will be very little repentance from those failures. You'll find there's very little turning to Christ because of those failures and being driven back to the cross 
you'll find very little of what we would expect from someone who just said what they said. Right? That's the deception. Because we can say, well, exhibit A, absolutely, amen. Yeah, yeah, that's the scriptures, you bet. And then we walk away from it two steps and we're what? We're, we're, it's, like we, it's, like, it's like we walk 10 miles from it. Because it can't even be found for so many people. That's what's happening in, in the Asian church. It's not, it's not that they're, they're now pagans. And you find the same thing in chapter 4. The same thing happens in chapter 4 that we'll discover in a few weeks. It's not that, that although there are some, but for the most part, it's not that they're, that they're turning away from Christ completely saying, ah, Jesus isn't God. Let's just go live like the world. That's not what's happening. It's an issue of priorities. It's an issue of misdiagnosing what the prescription is. Misidentifying the prescription. So what he does here then, he says, after he says all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable in contrast to everything I just said about the church in the last days, he goes on, he says, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, as I said in the beginning, it's very easy to become very legalistic at this point and say, again, here's what we need to do. We need to learn how we ought to live, teaching. And that's true. We need to learn about the whole issue of reproving us. We need to be reproved for how we're not living rightly so we can repent. True. We need to be corrected, or we need to learn about correction so we can correct the way we failed. The illustration I heard that I've used many times, if you punch somebody in the mouth, and then you, 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 you repent of that. And then you what? The correction is paying to fix the dental work type of thing. Instruction righteous, so you grow and change, and we're no longer punching people in the mouth anymore. That's true. It's not good for Christians to punch people in the mouth, usually. So all that's true. And certainly we have all these if I may use the term, these laws, these commands in the scriptures that we desperately need to hear, right? They're there. We need to hear them. We don't ignore those. But before we move out of 2 Timothy to all the various passages in the New Testament and Old Testament where we're, we're told these are the commands of God and these are the prohibitions of God which are important to hear, we need to hear what Paul says to Timothy, don't we? So at this point in time, I think what we need to do is we need to step away from this idea of teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness based on the laws primarily. The laws are secondary, especially in 2 Timothy. Because I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to show my, my whole card, if I may use that term. We're people of grace here, right? It's okay to use those kind of terms. Right off the bat. I'm just going to make this statement. Who cares? Who cares if I've been punching Ken in the mouth for the last 16 weeks and I've survived? 
if I've been punching Ken in the mouth for the last 16 weeks, who cares if I repent? You know, there's the, the teaching. I, that, that's, that's not what God expects. That's not love. The scriptures teach about love, right? That's not loving to Ken if I'm punching in the mouth, right? So I receive the teaching on love, and I, I'm like, whoa. And the Spirit begins to work in my heart about, you know, you're not loving Ken. He's reproving me, right? Through the scriptures. And he's reproving me about how wrong it is that I'm punching him in the mouth. And so in that reproof, I'm learning about the need to repent. And so I go to Ken and I ask him to forgive me. And Ken, because he's a spiritually mature guy, says, forget you. <laughs> because he's such a spiritually mature guy, he says, what? Forgiven. It's 16 weeks. Come on. He's pretty gracious. And then correction, I say, Ken, what's your bills? He says, my goodness, we're up like 4000 bucks now. Okay, it's covered. I'll, however long it takes, it's covered. Correction, right? And then Ken comes into my life and begins to minister to me and helps me grow spiritually and helps me to change so that my anger is getting in check and it's being replaced by love and I'm maturing, uh, training in righteousness, right? Who cares? There's only one person that cares at this point in time. If I, if, I, if I cease all that, right? Who's the one person? <laughs> He's the one guy that cares, right? But ultimately, who cares if I don't love Jesus more? Who cares? I mean, societally, that's good, right? Nobody needs anybody running around punching people in the mouth. Not a good thing societally. Not good for church life either, by the way. But ultimately, who cares? If I don't love Jesus more, what, what has Ken accomplished by helping me deal with my anger and my venting of my anger? What, have, what has he accomplished helping me grow in that area if I don't love Jesus more? What has he accomplished? Anybody? Oh, he's accomplished something, all right. He's accomplished helping me become a really good Pharisee. Hasn't he? That's what he's done. I've become a really good Pharisee. Because I'm not loving Jesus more. I'm not glorifying Christ. It's not your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. It's like something else is going on. See, it is possible. It's very possible to inculcate the teaching of the Scriptures in your life and not love Jesus more. Do you realize that? And that does not honor God. The Pharisees were really good at implementing Scriptures in their life. They didn't love Jesus. They hated Him. Do you realize that happens a lot? The result of all this should be not just afterwards, but in the process and even the very beginning, it ought to be driven by a, what? Love of Christ. Not a love of law. What did Paul say? I believe it was in 2 Corinthians. What controls him? The law? The love of Christ controls me. That's what he said. He didn't say the law controls me. The love of Christ controls me. Let us not move what is second. Not secondary as in, as in important, but second 
into the primary position. Well, is there anything in 2 Timothy that tells us that that's not the primary, but that something else is? Yes. So let's look at first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter two, uh, 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I just want you to hear the flow of 2 Timothy so that we get what Paul's really driving towards here. Starting in verse, let's start in verse 1, actually. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first with your mother Lois, your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God referring to his salvation which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of Christ. That's what he's saying. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I want to remind you, the gospel summed up is Christ. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a term you're going to hear repeated throughout the rest of the two chapters. Before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Isn't it interesting there's been no law stated yet? You notice that? Now, I know we're only in chapter 1, but there's been no law. He didn't say, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and in the law that God gave us. No, he said, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you, referring to your salvation. You are aware, and then he talks about the church in Asia again, Move down to chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faith men who will be able to teach others also. And by the way, what are they teaching? What does he teach to teach faithful ones? Christ Jesus. Okay, good, good. Share in the sufferings of the good soldier. Of Christ Jesus, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits because his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crop. Think over what I say. The Lord will give you understanding. We talked about that before. Verse 8. What? 
Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound in chains, as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they, may, uh, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, there it is again, with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Again, so far there's been almost no law. Verse 14, remind them of these things. What things? All these have been talking about Christ already, right? Remind them of these things and charge them before God. And then he gives them law not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearer. Do your best to present yourself as one approved, a worker, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now he's going back to the scriptures. But avoid a irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Harminius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but of wood and clay, some for honorable, some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will ha be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee, here we have some law now, See, so flee youthful passion and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish or ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Why did I read all that? Because, you know, there's, there's, there's a theme throughout the scriptures. You've heard me say it before. The indicatives always precede the imperatives, or the way I usually say it is imperatives always follow the indicative. That is, what is declared as reality is always first, and the imperatives are second. In other words, what that means are the commands and prohibitions are second. What does that mean? It means that the commands and prohibitions are dependent upon the statements of reality. Chapter 1 is full of statements of reality. Chapter 2 then bring out the, some of the commands. What, how does that come into play with regard to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 70? I would argue in 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16 and 70, when he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, it is not primarily teaching you how to live, although it's there, chapter 2, for example. But indicatives are always first. Commands and prohibitions, imperatives, are always second. What he's trying to say is when he says teaching, it's primarily teaching about Christ. When Paul tells Timothy, prescription number one, to continue in what you've learned, what does he specifically say there? They are able to make you wise to salvation. Does the law do that? No. It doesn't. The law at best shows us a need for a Redeemer. Shows us our hopelessness without the Redeemer. 
when he tells us it's profitable for teaching, he's primarily talking about it's profitable to teach you about the God who loves you, the God who has spoken, the God who is pouring out grace, the God who's pouring out mercy, and what all that means. That's why he said in, in early on, he said, um, remember, verse 8 of chapter 2, before he gets into the commands, remember, Christ or Jesus Christ risen from the dead, offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Remember Jesus. And so he tells us in chapter 3, 16, it's profitable to teach you about what? Well, primarily Jesus. That's why we call it Christianity, not lawyanity. Because Christianity is about Jesus. So it's primarily to teach you about Jesus. And then as we learn about Jesus, you know what's going to happen? As we grapple with the truth of who Christ is and what he's accomplished and what he's about and what his kingdom is about and all the rest of that, which, by the way, is a lifetime pursuit, you know what's going to happen? We're going to start to understand the love of Christ. And when we start to understand the love of Christ, you know what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen? We love because he first loved us. So what happens is we learn about the love of Christ and the Christ of love towards us. When we begin to learn of that and the ramifications of that and all the power of that that's in, it's so multifaceted, you know what's going to begin to happen? We're going to want to love Christ. Because we're redeemed. And we're going to start to love Christ. And his love is going to start to control us. And then as his love controls us, you know what's going to start to happen? The secondary things start to kick in. The love of Christ informs me that what I'm doing to Ken is sinful. It's wrong. It's dishonoring to the one who loves me. It's not what God tells me I can't, so I shouldn't. The love of Christ begins to control me. How can I love Christ and not love the ones he's chosen? Does that make sense? And so what I'm doing to Ken is, is so wrong. Why? Because it doesn't reflect the love I'm receiving. And I love the love that I'm receiving. I revel in the love I'm receiving. I'm blown away by the love I'm receiving. I'm getting it. I'm understanding it because the Spirit's opening my eyes to see teaching. And the correction or the, 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 the reproof flows out of that. But it's a redemptive reproof. And I find myself, as I'm being reproved, I find myself going back to the Scriptures saying, oh my goodness, this is so wrong. I'm devastated by, by how flippantly I'm receiving the love of Christ. That's what Paul said in, second, in uh, Romans 7, didn't he? Oh, wretched man that I am. That's a guy who's getting the love of Christ. It, that's a guy who has grappled with and understood the love of Christ that he's receiving. And so he's seeing himself as a wretched man. He's devastated by that. He's crying out for forgiveness. And then he immediately revels in what? Chapter 8. I'm not under condemnation of Romans. I'm not under condemnation. Oh, my goodness. His love and his mercy and his grace is so rich and deep and full and wide. And so I find myself saying, that's that's wrong. And, you know, God loves me enough that he didn't leave me blind. He told me how to 
He had to have told me how to deal with Ken. I know sometimes he's a pain in the neck and he stands on my last nerve, but it's tough. He's a child of the king, and I'm a child of the king, and, and I want to love him because I'm so, I, I am so unlovable, and yet Christ loved me. So I want to love him as a way of saying thank you to Christ. And so I find out what he says about correction and instruction in righteousness. But see, it's not being driven primarily by law. It's being driven primarily by Christ. Who cares if I've got it all figured out? I've told you this a long time ago. I don't know if you remember. I'll tell you again. It was a number of years ago now that I went out and I bought a new Bible. I read from Genesis to Revelation. And what I wanted to do is I, because I, I used to highlight verses all the time. I wanted to get a new Bible that was unhighlighted. And I just wanted to go Genesis to Revelation and highlight every verse that meant a lot to me. That really spoke to me. I got to the end of Revelation chapter 22 and I began to page back through. I refused to look and see what I highlighted until I got all the way through. Because I suspected there was going to be some sort of themes going on. And I was blown away, devastated. Let me give you an example. There was almost nothing highlighted in Romans 1 through 11. But boy, oh boy, Romans 12 through 16, it was as yellow as could be. Colossians 1 and 2 had almost nothing highlighted, but 3 and 4 were jammed. Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and the first half of 4 had almost nothing highlighted, but chapter 4.22 to chapter 6 at the end, it was jammed with yellow. I found it everywhere. Everywhere. I was shocked. I was devastated. I knew the law. I didn't know Christ. All the passages about Jesus meant nothing to me or little to me. They were just lead up to the passages I really loved. It was devastating. I go back to it again. Who cares if you keep the law? Who cares if you know the law? Who cares? So long as Jesus. The theme to Timothy of Paul from Paul and ultimately from God, is not Timothy. In the midst of a church going off the rails, in the midst of a church that's going to go even more off the rails, Timothy, you keep the law. That's not what Paul said. Not even close. Paul said, Timothy, the prescription for you, in effect, if we blow it all away, is cling, cling to Christ. Know Christ. Fellowship with Christ. Learn of Christ. Taste and see that he is good. Drink from the well, uh, from the spring of living water and continue to drink. And you know what's going to happen? The indicatives are going to inform the imperatives. And you're going to be transformed. And you're not going to look like anybody else in the church, Timothy. You're not going to look like anybody else. That's not a reason to change, but you don't look like anybody else. It's a lot easier just to change by going shopping in a weird place and look like nobody else. You're going to look like nobody else because you're going to look like somebody who loves Jesus. Yeah, it's interesting. I find out oftentimes when people talk about other Christians, they use all sorts of terms about them. You know, that person really knows the Bible. Or 
that person is a real prayer warrior. And we can go on to any number of other statements I hear people make. You know what you seldom hear? That person really knows and loves Jesus. You almost never hear that. That person is just absolutely enthralled with Jesus. Oh, you get, oh that person's a real evangelist. And, or, or they'll list all the, all the gifts that the person supposedly has. But you almost never hear someone say, you know, that person really loves Jesus. Why? Why? Shouldn't that be what stands out? Our gifts shouldn't be the thing that stands out. The thing that should stand out is Jesus. That's the call in the scriptures to cling to Jesus, right? To know Jesus. Paul, I want to I'm sorry, Jesus, remember in, in John chapter 17 when he prayed for his disciples and for those who come after, said what? We just studied it. What did they say, Charles? That they would know the Father and they would know the Son who you sent. That's what he prayed for you and for me, that we would know him and that we would know the Father, that we would know him in the most intimate way imaginable. That's what he prayed. He did not pray that they'll know the law, that they'll be taught the law, and, and, and they'll be reproved for not keeping the law, and that they will, that they will correct according to the law, and that they will grow in righteousness because of the law. That's directly contrary to what he said in Philippians. He has a righteousness that's what? Not his own. It's imputed righteousness, right? It was given to him. It's Christ's righteousness that we have. That's all we have. All my righteousness is, is what? Filthy rags, or as Tom puts it so often, and I appreciate it, Tom, the way you put it, that in the best of my activities, sin is always present. Always. Praise the Lord, I'm not banking on that one. The primary call of the scriptures is to know Christ. Fellowship with Christ. Learn of Christ. Taste and see that he's good. Drink from the well. Keep drinking from the well. Enjoy Christ. And the spirit will change everything. Now, do we need to obey the law that Paul gives? Absolutely. No question. But we need to keep things in order. Indicatives are always first, imperatives are always second. Imperatives are always informed by the indicatives. Imperatives hang off the indicatives, depend on them. Their life is found in the truth of the indicative of what is. And that's why we've been talking about this for so long, knowing Christ. We sing about it, we talk about it. The question that we have is, do we know Christ? It's really easy to fall into the traps, isn't it? It's amazingly easy to fall into the traps of, of establishing things that are profitable by themselves. And it could even be the law. And it's not profitable by itself. Or in not knowing Christ, we get sucked into chapters 3, verses 1 through 9. Those things start to make sense right away because they don't know Jesus. And so the call to you and me is to know Jesus, to learn of him. Same thing we've always been talking about. I know you know these things, as Peter says oftentimes. I just wanted to remind you and remind me. The call is that we know Jesus. That we're taught about him, that we're taught him, that we learn of him, that we remind ourselves of him, that we continue to fellowship with him. When we fellowship with him, we're going to be finding ourselves looking to the law, too. 
but in light of him. So how well do you know Jesus? That's the question, because that's the prescription. A church in trouble, the prescription for them is not more programs, is not better buildings, is not better activities, or a better preacher. It's none of those things. The prescription is to cling to what you've learned, become firmly convinced of. How about Jesus? Be taught of Jesus. Remember Jesus. Grow intimate with Jesus. It's amazing the power of the Spirit to change our lives. But I'm convinced that the Spirit does not primarily use commands and prohibitions and imperatives. He primarily uses the indicatives. Because the imperatives without the indicatives are meaningless. And they certainly do nothing godlessly. You know Jesus? See, the scriptures, we also, I just want to close on this. We also don't call this thing that we're doing Biblianity either. Right? We don't call it Biblianity. We call it Christianity for a very good reason. It's not about the law. It's not about the Bible. It's about Jesus. Now, we don't know anything about Jesus outside the scriptures. But if you think that sounds like heresy, I want to remind you what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You keep searching the scriptures because you think you'll find salvation there and you forget that all these things do what? They point to me, he said. And this. Get so close and yet so far away. If you're concerned about our church, one of the greatest things you can do is know Jesus. Become intimate with Jesus. And you will discover the love of Christ and begin to control you beyond your wildest imaginations and he will be glorified. He will be magnified. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <coughs> we are prone to wander, although we typically define wandering as something that we don't do. We are prone to wander so often from the truth of Jesus. We're prone to wander into things that seem good and right, but in and of themselves, separated from Christ, they are not. And so we ask you to help us. Protect us from merely learning imperatives, commands and prohibitions. Help us with the indicatives. Help us to know you.